Chapter 1 of Max. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. Max by Catherine Cecil Thurston. Part 1. Chapter 1. A night journey is essentially a thing of possibilities. To those who count it as mere transit, mere linking of experiences, it is, of course, a commonplace. But to the imaginative, who by gift divine see a picture in every cloud, a story behind every shadow, it suggests romance, romance in the very making. Such a vessel of inspiration was the powerful North Express, as it thundered over the sleeping plains of Germany and France on its night journey from Cologne to Paris. A thing of possibilities, indeed, with its varying human freight, Stolid Teutons, hard-headed Scandinavians, Slavs whom expediency or caprice had forced to descend upon Paris across the sea of ice. It was the month of January, and an unlikely and unlovely night for long and arduous travel. There were few pleasure passengers on the express, and if one could have looked through the carriage windows, blurred with damp mist, one would have seen upon almost every face the look, resigned or resolute, of those who fare forth by necessity rather than by choice. In the sleeping-cars all the berths were occupied, but here and there throughout the length of the train an occasional traveller slept on the seat of his carriage, wrapped in coats and rugs, while in the dining-saloon a couple of sleepy waiters lurched to and fro in attendance upon a party of three men whose energy precluded the thought of wasting even the night-hours, and who were playing cards at one of the small tables. Up and down the whole overheated, swaying train there was a suggestion of mystery, of contrast and effect, and the twinkling eyes of the electric lamps seemed to wink from behind their drawn hoods as though they, worldly wise and watchful, saw the individuality, the inevitable story, behind the drowsy units who sat or lay or lounged unguarded beneath them. In one carriage, the fifth or sixth from the thundering engine, these lights winked and even laughed one to the other each time the train lurched over the points, and the dark shrouding hoods quivered, allowing a glimpse of the occupant of the compartment. It was the figure of a boy upon which the twinkling lamp-eyes flickered, a boy who had as yet scarce passed the barrier of manhood, for the skin of his face was clean and smooth, and the limbs, seen vaguely under a rough overcoat, had the freedom and supple grace that belongs to early youth. He was sleeping, this solitary traveller, one hand under his head, the other instinctively guarding something that lay deep and snug in the pocket of his overcoat. His attitude was relaxed, but not entirely abandoned to the solace of repose. Even in his sleep a something of self-consciousness seemed to cling to him, a need for caution that lay near to the surface of his drowsing senses. For once or twice he started, once or twice his straight dark eyebrows twitched into a frown, once or twice his fingers tightened nervously upon their treasure. He was subconsciously aware that, deserted though the compartment was, it yet exhaled an alien suggestion, embodied in the rugs, the coats, the hand-baggage of the car-playing travellers, which was heaped upon the seat opposite. But, despite this physical uneasiness, he was dreaming as the train tore along through the damp, peaceful country, dreaming with that odd confusion of time and scene that follows upon keen excitement 
stress of feeling, or stress of circumstance. As he dreamed, he was standing again in the outer court of a house in Petersburg, a house to which he was debtor for one night's shelter. It was early morning and deadly cold. The whole picture was sharp as a cut crystal. The triple courtyard, the stone pavement, the grey well, and frozen pile of firewood. He saw, recognised, lost it, and knew himself to be skimming down the Nevsky Prospect and across the Winter Palace Square, where the great angel towers upon its rose-granite monument. Forward, forward he was carried, along the bank of the frozen Neva and over the Troitsky Bridge, the powdered snow stinging his face like pinpoints as it flew up from the nails in his little horse's shoes. Then followed a magnifying of the picture, massed buildings rising from the snow, buildings gold and turquoise-domed, that even as they materialised lost splendour, and merged into the unpretentious frontage of the Finland station. The scroll of the dream unwound. The dreamer moved, easing his position, shaking back a lock of dark hair that had fallen across his forehead. He was no longer rocking to the power of the North Express. He was standing on the platform at the end of a little train that puffed out of the Finland station, a primitive miniature train, white with frost and powdered with the ashes of its wood fuel. The vision came and passed a sketch, not a picture, a suggestion of straight tracks, wide snow plains, and the blue misty blur of fir woods. Then a shifting, a juggling of effects. Abel, the Finnish port, painted itself upon his imagination, and he was embarked upon the lonely sledge-drive to the harbour. He started in his sleep, shivered and sighed at the remembered drive. The train passed over new points, the hoods of the lamps swayed, the lights blinked and winked, and his mind swung onward in response to the physical jar. Abel was obliterated. He was on board a ship, a ship plying her way through the ice-fields as she neared Stockholm. Salt sea air flicked his nostrils. He heard the broken ice tearing the keel like a million files. He was sensible of the crucial sensation, the tremendous quiver, as the vessel slipped from her bondage into the cradle of the sea, a sentient thing welcoming her own element. The heart of the dreamer leaped to that strange sensation. He drew a long, sharp breath, and sat up, suddenly awake. It was over and done with, the coldness, the rigour, the region of ice bonds. The fingers of the future beckoned to him. The promises of the future lapped his ears, as the waves had lapped the ship's sides. He looked about him, at first excitedly, then confusedly, then a little shamefacedly, for we are always involuntarily ashamed of being tricked by our emotions into a false conception. Drawing his hand from his coat-pocket, he stretched himself with an assumption of ease, as though he saw and recognised the twinkle in the electric lamps, and spontaneously rose to its demands. The train was flying forward at unabated speed. Outside, the raw January air was clinging in a film to the carriage window. Inside, the dim light and overheated air made an artificial atmosphere, enervating or stimulating according to the traveller's gifts. To this solitary voyager, stimulation was obviously the effect produced, for, try as he might to cheat the inquisitive lamps, interest in every detail of his surroundings was portrayed in his face, in the poise of his head, the quickness of his glance, as he gazed round the compartment, verifying the impression that he was alone. Yes, he was, absolutely alone. Everything was as it had been when he settled himself to sleep on the departure of the three strangers. 
There, on the opposite seat, were their rugs, their fur-lined coats, their illustrated papers, all the impedimenta of prosperous travellers, and there, on the rack above them, was his own modest handbag, without initials or label, a common little bag that might have belonged to some poor Russian clerk, or held the possessions of some needy Polish student. The owner's glance scanned and appraised it, then by suggestion fell to the plain rough overcoat that covered him from his neck to the tops of his high boots, and whose replica was to be seen any day in the meaner streets of Petersburg or Moscow. Like the bag, it was a little strange, a little incongruous in its comfortable surroundings, a little savouring of mystery. The traveller's passes quickened, his being lifted to the moment, for in his soul was the spark of adventure, in his eyes the adventurous look, fearless, observant, questioning. In composition, in expression and essence, this boy was that free and fascinating creature, the born adventurer, high of courage, prodigal of emotion, capturer of the world's loot. The spirit within him shone out in the moment of solitude. He passed his hand down the front of his coat, revelling in its coarse texture. He rose to his feet, turned to the sheet of grey misted glass, and, letting down the window, leaned out into the night. The scene was vague and ghostly, but to eyes accustomed to northern whiteness it was full of suggestion, full of secrecy. To nostrils accustomed to keen, rarefied air there was something poignant and delicious in the scent of turned earth, the savour of vegetation. He could see little or nothing as the train rocked and the landscape tore past, but the atmosphere spoke to him as it speaks to blind men, penetrating his consciousness. Here were open spaces, tracts of country fructifying for the spring to come, a land of promise, of growth, of fulfilment. He closed his eyes, living in the suggestion, and his spirit sped forward with the onrush of the train. Somewhere beyond the darkness lay the land of his desires. Somewhere behind the veil shone the lights of Paris. With a quick exulting excitement he laughed, but even as the laugh was caught and scattered to the winds by the thunder of the engine, his bearing changed. The excitement dropped from him, a mask of immobility fell upon his face, and he wheeled round from the window. The car-plane travellers had opened the door of the carriage. From his shadowy corner the boy eyed them, and they, alert from their game, slightly dazed by the darkness of the carriage, peered back at him, frankly curious. When they had left the compartment, he had been a huddled figure demanding no attention. Now he was awake and an individual, and human nature prompted interest. Each, in turn, looked at him, and at each new glance his coldness of demeanour deepened, until, as the eldest of the party came down the carriage and appropriated the seat beside him, he turned away, pulling up the window with resentful haste. "'Don't do that,' said the third man, pausing in the doorway, and speaking in French easily and pleasantly. "'Don't do that if you want the air.' The boy started and looked round. "'I thank you, but I do not need the air.' The man smiled acquiescence, but as he stepped into the carriage he took a sharp look at the boy's clothes, the common Russian clothes, and a slightly questioning, slightly satirical expression crossed his face. He was a man who knew his world, the globe over, and in his bearing lurked the toleration, the kindly scepticism that such knowledge breeds. "'As you please,' he said, settling himself comfortably in the corner by the door, while the elder of his companions, 
a tall, spare American, crossed his long legs and lighted a thin black cigar, and the younger, a spruce young Englishman wearing an eyeglass and a small moustache, wrapped himself in his rugs, took a clean pocket-handkerchief from his dressing-case, and opened a large bundle of illustrated papers, French, German, and English. For a space the train rocked on. No one attempted to speak, and the Russian boy continued to stand by the window, pretending to look through the blurred panes, in reality wondering how he could with least commotion pass down the carriage to his own vacated place. At last the man with the long cigar broke the silence in a slow, cool voice that betrayed his nationality. "'Well, well on time, Blake,' he remarked, drawing out his watch. The youth by the window shot an involuntary fleeting glance at the two younger men to see which would answer to the name, and the student of human nature noticed the fact that he understood English. "'Oh, it's a good service,' he acquiesced, the tolerant look, half sceptical, half humorous, passing again over his face. "'I don't know. I think we could do with another few kilometres to the hour.' The thin man studied his flat gold watch with the loving interest of one to whom time is a secret thing. At this point the youngest of the three raised his head. "'Marvellous sight you have, McCutcheon, which I could see by this light.' McCutcheon leaned forward, replacing his watch. "'What? Can't you see your picture-books? Let's have the blinkers off.' He rose, his long spidery figure stretching up like a grotesque shadow, but his arm went to the nearest of the shrouded lamps he was compelled to draw back against the seat of the carriage, and an exclamation of surprise escaped him. Without warning or apology, the Russian boy had turned from the window, and, stepping down the carriage, had tumbled into his former seat, hunching himself up with his face to the cushions and his back to his fellow-travellers. It was a sudden and an uncivil proceeding. The man called Blake smiled. The Englishman shrugged his shoulders. The American, with a movement of quiet determination, drew back the lamp-hoods. In the flood of light the carriage lost its air of mystery, and Blake who had a fancy for the mysterious, dropped back into his corner and took out his cigar-case with a little feeling of regret. In traversing the world's pathways, beaten or wild, he always made a point of seeing the story behind the circumstance, and, had he realised it, a common instinct bound him in a triangular link to the peering, winking lamps, and to the Russian boy lying unsociably wrapped in his heavy coat. All three had an eye for adventure." But the lights were up and the curtain down. It was a theatre between the acts, and presently the calculating voice of McCutcheon broke forth again as he relapsed into his original attitude, coiling up his long limbs and nursing his cigar to a glow. "'I can't get over that four jacks,' he said. "'To think I could have been funked into seeing Billy at fifty. Blake laughed. "'Twas the eyeglass, did it, Mac? A man shouldn't be allowed to play poker with an eyeglass. It's taking an undue advantage. McCutcheon smiled his dry smile and shot a quizzical glance at the neat young Englishman, who had become absorbed in one of his papers. Solid face, Blake, he agreed. Nothing so fine as an eyeglass for sheer bluff. What would Billy be without one? Well, perhaps we won't say. But with it you have no use for doubt. He's a diplomat all the time. The young man named Billy showed no irritation. With the composure which he wore as a garment, he went on with his occupation. For a time McCutcheon bore this aloofness, then he opened a new attack. "'What are you reading, my son?' 
Makes a man sort of want his breakfast to see that hungry look in your eyes. Share the provender, won't you? Billy looked up sedately. You fellows think my life's a game, he said. But I tell you, it takes some doing to keep in touch with things. Blake laughed chaffingly. And the illustrated weekly papers are an excellent substitute for blue books? Billy remained undisturbed. It's all very well to scoff, but one may get a sidelight anywhere. In diplomacy, nothing's too insignificant to notice. Again Blake laughed. The principle on which it offers you a living? Oh, come, said Billy, that's rather rough. You know very well what I mean. It isn't always in the serious reports you get the colour of a fact, just as the gossip of a dinner-table is often more enlightening than a cabinet council. Apropos, I was thinking of this Petersburg affair. What, the everlasting Duma business? McCutcheon drew in a long breath of smoke. Biddy looked superior, as befitted a man who dealt in subtler matters than mere politics. Not at all, he said. The disappearance of the Princess Davorska. Here Blake made a murmur of impatience. Oh, Biddy, don't, he said. It's so frightfully banal. McCutcheon took his cigar from his mouth. The woman who disappeared on the eve of her marriage? Yes, broke in Blake, disappeared on the eve of her marriage to elope with some poet or painter, and set society by the ears, thoroughly modern and banal. The young diplomat glanced up once more. I don't think there's any suggestion of a lover. Fact is more potent than suggestion, Billy. Of course there's a lover. Princesses don't disappear alone. You're a socialist, Ned. Billy's eyes returned to his paper. Like all good socialists, crammed to the neck with class bigotry. Nobody is such an individualist as the man who advocates equality. Blake smiled. That seems to sound all right, he said, but it doesn't remove the lover. The good human scepticism at last forced a way to Billy's susceptibilities. Look here, he said crossly, if hearing's not believing, perhaps seeing is. Look at these pictures. They're not particularly modern or banal. He held out his paper, but Blake shook his head. No, no, Billy, not for me. If it was some little Romanian gypsy who had run away from her tribe, I'd take her to my heart and welcome. But a Princess de Vosca, no. At this point, McCutcheon stretched out his long arm and took the paper from Billy's hand. Let's have a squint, he said. Lover or no lover, she must be a bit wide awake. And, curling himself up again, he began to read from the paper in a monotonous, murmuring voice. A princess, as well as being a woman of artistic accomplishments, is an ardent sportswoman, having in her early girlhood hunted and shot with keen zest on her father's estates. The above picture shows her at the age of seventeen carrying a gun. By the Lord, she is wide awake, he added, by way of comment. She is wide awake carrying that gun, but I'd lay my money on the second picture. Say, Biddy, she looks a queen in her court finery. But here... Real disgust crossed Blake's face. "'Oh, that'll do, Mac. Give us peace about the woman. I'm sick to death of all such nonsense. We're due in a couple of hours. I think I'll try for forty winks.' He threw away his cigar and tucked his rug about him. McCutcheon glanced at him, and seeing that he was in earnest, handed the paper back to Billy. "'Thanks, Mac,' Blake murmured. "'Sorry if I was a bear. Don't switch off the light. It won't bother me.' He nodded, smiled, drew his rug closer about his knees, 
and settles himself to sleep with the ease of the accustomed traveller. For close upon an hour complete silence reigned in the heated carriage. Blake slept silently and peacefully. Billy went methodically through his papers, dropping them one by one at his feet as he finished with them. McCutcheon smoked, gazing into space with the blank expression of the strenuous man who has learned to utilise his momentary respites, while, stretched along the cushions of the carriage, his face hidden, his eyes wide open and attentive, lay the young Russian, his fingers tentatively caressing the treasure in the pocket of his coat. But at last the spell was broken. The diplomatic Englishman dropped his last paper, and McCutcheon stretched himself and looked once more at his watch. "'Paris in an hour, Billy. Didn't those loafers in the dining-car promise us coffee somewhere about this time?' Billy looked up, unruffled of mind and body, as in the first moment of the journey. "'I believe they did,' he said. "'Tell you what, you jog their memories while I go and wash. What about calling Ned?' At sound of his own name, Blake's eyes opened. His waking was characteristic of him. It was no slow recovery of the senses. He was asleep, and then awake, fully, easily awake, with a complete consciousness of his position, a complete, assured grasp of time and place. "'We're getting on, eh?' he said. "'I suppose you're going to tub before those fat Belgians in the sleeping-car, Billy. If you are, keep a second place for me like a good boy. There's nothing more fiendishly triumphant than taking a bath in the basin while the rest of the train is rattling the door-handle. Don't forget, second place.' and he turned to the American. "'What about the coffee, Mac? I expect those poor devils of waiters have slept your order off.' "'I was just about to negotiate that coffee transaction.' McCutcheon stood up. "'You come too, my son. That little exercise will give you an appetite.' He paused to stretch his long, lean body, and incidentally his glass fell upon their travelling companion, and he indicated the recumbent figure with a jerk of the head. "'Say, Ned, ought we to wake our unsociable friend?' Blake cast one quick glance at the huddled form. Then he answered tersely, "'Let him alone. He's not asleep. Anyway, he understands English.' At which McCutcheon made a comprehending grimace, and the two left the carriage. For many minutes the young Russian did not move. Then, when positive certainty of his solitude had grown into his mind, he lifted himself on one elbow and looked cautiously about him. A change had passed over his face in the last hour, an interesting change. The smooth cheek that the night air had cooled to paleness was now flushed, and there was a spark of anger in the bright eyes. Unquestionably, this boy had a temper and a spirit of his own, and both had been aroused. There was a certain arrogance, a certain contempt in his glance now, as it swept the inoffensive coats and rugs of the departed travellers, a certain antagonism as he sat up, tossed back the lock of hair that had again fallen across his forehead, and turned his eyes to the heap of papers lying upon the carriage floor. For long he gazed upon these papers, as though they exercised a magnetic influence, and at last, with a swift impulse, extremely characteristic, he stretched out his arm and drew forth the lowest of the heap. He regained his former position with a quick, lithe movement of the body, and in an instant he was poring over the paper, the pages turning with incredible speed under the eagerness of his touch. At last he reached the page he sought, the page that had offered ground for discussion to the three voyagers an hour earlier. His eyes flashed, his fingers tightened, his dark head was bent lower over the paper. Two pictures confronted him. 
The first was of a woman in Russian court dress, who wore her jewels and her splendour of apparel with an air of pride and careless supremacy that had in it something magnificent, something semi-barbaric. The boy looked at this curious and arresting picture, but only for a moment. By some affinity, some subtle attraction, his eyes turned instantly to the second portrait, the girl carrying the gun, and as if in answer to some secret sympathy, some silent comprehension, the frown upon his brows relaxed, and his lips parted. It was still the woman of the jewels and the splendid apparel, but it was a woman infinitely free, infinitely unhampered. The plain, serviceable clothes fitted the slight figure as though they had been long worn and loved. The hair was closely coiled, so that the young face looked out upon the world frank and unadorned as a boy's. Here, as in the first picture, the eyes looked forth with a curious, proud directness. But beneath the directness was a glint of humour, a flash of daring, absent in the other face. The mouth smiled, seeming to anticipate life's secrets. The ungloved hand held the gun with a touch peculiarly caressing, peculiarly firm. The traveller looked, looked again, and then, with a deliberation odd in so slight a circumstance, folded the paper, rose, and stepped to the window of the carriage. The night mist beat in, still raw and cold, but somewhere behind the darkness was the stirring, the vague presage of the day to come. He leaned out, fingers close about the paper, lips and nostrils breathing in the suggestive, vaporous air. For a moment he stood, steadying himself to the motion of the train, palpitating to his secret thoughts. Then, with a little theatricality all for his own edification, he opened his fingers, and, freeing the paper, watched it swirl away, hang for a second like a moth against the lighted window, and vanish into the night. End of chapter 1